0: welcome to building a hundred million pound business in public four years ago i was having lunch with my friend logan when we half joked about racing to a hundred million and it's always stayed in my head what does it take to build a hundred million pound business on this podcast i ask my network and speak to vcs founders dni specialists marketeers and more to share their top tips some have made it some are on the way and all have a story to tell So, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Today I'm joined by the CEO of Arteria AI, Shelby. Arteria AI was spun out of Deloitte in 2020 and has just raised an 11 million Series A. Uh, Shelby's previous business was acquired by Deloitte in 2014, and she's been recognized in the top 25 women leaders in tech services and consulting. Welcome, Shelby.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Oh my pleasure! Well, how about yourself by telling us just a bit more about yourself and Artira AI?
1: Yeah, so a bit more about me. Uh, my very first career was as a lawyer, uh, which is so funny to think about because I don't think I don't think that that's how I think about myself anymore. Um, but in fact, I made partner at um, I think in the UK you guys call them magic circle law firms. We call them the Seven Sisters. Very posh names for these sorts of groups of firms. And then maybe uh, 18 months after making partner or thereabouts, I quit to start my first startup, which is also in the legal tech space. Though now it's, I I guess we're more in FinTech. And uh, then eventually, as you said, sold that business to Deloitte, um, went on to have an awesome career there where they let me do all sorts of fun stuff, including really lead highly technical teams, uh, including analytics, uh, AI and data. Um, through this amazing organization on the AI that I went on to lead. Then it was in that role that we first came up with plans for Arteria. I think the first sketch of the wireframes I drew on my second maternity leave as I was sitting around my living room um, Hmm. and then built it and incubated it within an incubator that I led for Deloitte. Then eventually we were able to spin it out. In terms of the company itself, uh, our mission is to help banks contract faster and smarter. And uh, we sort of fundamentally believe, really like, take it so seriously, so here goes, um, that anyone anywhere in the world should be able to generate, negotiate, escalate and execute their contracts all while having world-leading analytics at any time of day and just have an absolute a frictionless digital contract.
0: Wow. Well, having having been involved in buying businesses and selling businesses, and when you get banks involved in anything, I can only imagine what those contracts look like at the moment in terms of complexity and time.
1: Yeah, I think that that's actually like a key differentiator for us. I think the space can be quite fragmented, but it's mostly fragmented in the areas where people are dealing with, um, you know, quite simple contracts. And I think for us, you know, being able to go right to the very end of complexity while still maintaining simplicity as well uh, has been a key differentiator for us and, and really ensuring that we'll work across the spectrum has been quite good for us.
0: Mm. And how, how, how has it been? Like, Have you found that aside from the contract stuff, your legal background has helped?
1: Yeah, I think that lawyers have amazing training. First of all, I think we work harder than anyone I know. <laughs> and so I think that discipline of really just committing wholesale I, when I was a young little lawyer, again, I don't relate necessarily to hers all that much, but you know, I just like I so badly wanted to do well and I wanted to be the smartest and the best and I was just the most earnest person you'd ever met, <laughs> probably annoyingly so thinking back. But yeah, so I just, um, I really wanted to be um, the very best. So I think that that compulsion is one of the reasons actually my whole career, um, I've, I've hired quite a number of lawyers to work with me whether or not we're using them for their legal skills or not. And then certainly the conversancy with the technical aspects of how lawyers as users want to use software um, has been helpful. Though primarily these days, we see ourselves as like a pure banking business and operations tool as well, uh, where lawyers mm. happen to be sort of critical users.
0: Mm. But that's good news. My, my, my sister will be happy to hear that. She is, she's a recovering lawyer as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. There are a number of us around the world.
0: Um, and what, what was it like spinning out? You mentioned that you span out Arteria out of Deloitte. How How is that different to, let's say, just starting on your own the first time?
1: Well, goodness. First of all, a beat on Deloitte. It's just about the most fabulous place to work in the world. Um, I was privileged to work there and had a wonderful experience Um, And in particular, I I had my kids during the time when I was there and think that they were just amazing for a female executive. So huge shout out there. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the difference for us is that we were surrounded by subject matter experts who really understood, you know, the technical aspects of DCM or of, you know, ISDA or of, you know, these these little pockets of of expertise that we wanted to be quite close to. And so I think um, that a lot of startups can struggle with having amazing tech, but not really understanding the problem itself. And I think Mm. for us, we're very problem centric. um, And Deloitte was certainly very helpful in helping us orient toward the client needs um, and having technology be incredibly important, but really having being useful just as our primary purpose.
0: Mm. So, So being really focused on the problem.
1: Yes, I think so.
0: I think so. How did you get so focused on the problem? Is that so just internal knowledge you guys had, or, or were you quite rigorous about going out and speaking to potential customers?
1: So anyone who knows me knows that I love speaking with our customers. Uh-huh. Not to borrow from Amazon's book too much, but to say I'm customer obsessed probably doesn't quite cut it. It's like like living, breathing. Um, and I think part of it is is having that background, having worked primarily in banking forever in tech with that legal background. You sort of almost try and embody that voice of the customer, but also just trying to go out and continue to validate and continue to rip apart. Like Arterio was not perfect on day one. I think any technology that claims that it got it right out the gate um, is probably not going to last forever. For us, we built sort of uh, parts of it the first time, got it wrong, acknowledged that, ripped it out, rebuilt it. I mean, case in point, one of the primary philosophies around Arteria is that customers want to be able to be self-sufficient and do it themselves. The first time we built our do-it-yourself GUIs or or interfaces where customers were able to go in and and sort things out for themselves, we were thinking about the problem one way and really only solving the problem in one particular direction. We've probably built that same module three or four times now, and now Hmm. it's really awesome. Um, But, you know, the first time it was relatively good idea, you know, a little to be desired on the execution, and so I think continuing to see technology as an evolution, knowing that you want to harden your code and provide the best code, but also being flexible to really getting better, is the reason why Arteria is doing quite well.
0: So, so being really focused, like not being carried away by the tech. So, sort of that that very old thing around sort of are you building the best mouse trap because you can, or are you is it actually fundamentally going to catch the mouse?
1: Yeah. So, I mean. Obviously, I led um, an AI practice, so I love deep technology. Um, my particular expertise is around natural language processing and really understanding application and understanding, you know, where different parts can be useful. Um, and I love, I love the technology. You shouldn't underestimate my my utter sense. But the type of research we'll do at Arteria is quite different than the type of research that you would see at. Uh, somewhere like a Google. Google's always gonna have the best algorithms. We're gonna um, implement them in proprietary ways, but, but they're gonna have better algorithms than we do because they're Google. <laughs> for us, we're gonna focus on how do we make the models smaller? How do we make everything more practical? How do we ensure that our transfer learning makes people be able to train less? It's just like this utter practicality with which we're taking sort of academic purity of love for the, for the technology. And just trying to think, if in real life, can it handle scale? Can it handle volume? Can it be interconnected? Can it connect to some mainframe kicking in a corner? You know, like we're, we're just we're just trying to think about it really in terms of how do we make this actually work and actually achieve value versus uh, versus just sticking with sort of living life in in our little bubble.
0: Mm. Well, that probably leads quite nicely on to this, like, this thing we're going to talk about. So, this top tip, like there's one thing that you've learned so far that you would definitely do or definitely wouldn't do to sort of reach 100 million. What, what would it be?
1: You know, so you gave me this question in advance, and I thought a lot about it, but I'm not sure I have the best answer for it. First of all, I think it's very dangerous. Like, you want your founders to have ambition, right? You want them to want to be the type of people that get you to a billion dollars or a hundred million pounds in your case. Um, But I think it's quite dangerous to think about building a hundred million pound business. I think for me, I am ruthless about getting to the next milestone. And so my North star is the next milestone. Um, And so I try and see it like in my first business, I never expected it to be so big and have so many people (laughs) and have everything running around. But I think that the focus with which I put one foot in front of the other really made the difference rather than trying to be the biggest or the best. And so, Mm -hmm. again, I find myself gravitating to, number one, turning every client, no matter what, even if it's bumpy at the start, turning every single client into a raving fan. And there's actually a book called Raving Fan, so not my technology, but fine. Like, but turning every single one. Number two, making our people spectacularly happy. And not to say they all want to work here forever, but giving them a proper experience at a startup with that energy for as long as they want to be here. Um, And then finally, just putting our absolute heart and soul into the product. And I think if we do those things right, and not to sound trite about it, but I think sometimes we overcomplicate this idea of building big businesses. And I think for us, it's about simplifying, getting to fundamentals, putting one foot in front of the other. and then having those activities hopefully lead to big businesses. Now, obviously you have to plan um, if you want to be big. And in Arteria, one of the best things I did um, is that I, I really scaled at a proper executive team from day one, knowing that we would be able to scale much more quickly. That said, and it's going to seem contradictory, I really do hold close to my heart this notion of building not to scale initially, treating every person like they're your last person or last client. Um, to ensure that everyone has that particular startup attention, um, and then, uh, of course, letting it expand from there.
0: Does that does that link this idea of like trying to figure out product market fit before you before you put the pedal down, in terms of when you when you're getting together this core team and like the right customers and the right team, and not trying to scale too fast too early.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. No, I think we have product market fit. Like, I think we actually we know our niche. We know it well. I think our product market fit will evolve um, based upon where uh, you know where the market is. But I think initially we're very clear that we want to serve banks and we're very clear that their problems are specific and that we will serve banks better than other people will because we understand who they are and what they're trying to achieve.
0: Mm-hmm. So I
1: think we have that. But I think um, it really comes from, from Stanford's entrepreneurship program is this idea of build not to scale and then build to scale. And I think so much of that is, is instilling you know, a culture of urgency, a culture of excellence, uh, a culture of speed, a culture of obsession, but also a culture of, of you know, kindness and, and uh, just ensuring that you really have the right mix of laughs and, and, and creativity that still are allowed to flow free within your organization.
0: How do you balance that then? The idea of, on the one hand, speed and obsession versus the other hand, kindness. Because you look at some businesses, which, let's say, Elon Musk businesses, where there's famous obsession on speed, execution, discipline, get it in place. But that can come with like quite significant personal cost. How how how, how do you balance the two?
1: Well, I think part of it is when I became a mum, I just I didn't want to be a crap mum, you know. And so what that meant is that I really role modeled leaving the office every day at 5.30. And I had a big job and could make myself busy 24 hours a day. But I found with appropriate discipline and actually carrying that excellence, not just through the business life, but my personal life as well, I was able to sort of achieve a much more holistic sense of excellence around that. Mm. I mean, I think that uh, ensuring that people have balance and ensuring that it's okay to bring your whole self to work and be totally authentic, um, while still pushing for excellence, can can actually create even an enhanced. In my, I mean, in my humble opinion, I think it can create even an enhanced excellence because I think if you're too focused on performance in the short term, you end up, you know, having a lot of attrition and paying the cost for that. And for me, I, I'm focused on building, and you'll hear me say this all the time. But I really am focused on building a great, iconic Canadian company that will be global, but, but headquartered in Canada where I'm from, because, they, you know, there's a whole history to, to companies from Canada that where we exit early, like my first business. So I feel particularly passionate about that. And, I, and so I think we really have to be focused on short term goals, but treating mm. our people like we want them there in 20 years. Just as one example, every Friday the whole company gets together and we talk about our culture. Not projects. It's not a standup. Not our product. Just our culture. And we spend, particularly in COVID, just over an hour hanging out and getting to know each other and learning about topics. And um, two weeks ago, we were talking about grit, um, and our CRO, Abrar who's been with me since my startup, case in point. <laughs> uh, he giving us a bit of a talk on grit, and then we were talking through our goals. And a number of people, when they were talking through their goals, were saying, you know, I really want some more balance. And so this past week, I did it on listening because I really felt like each week I need to challenge myself to be a little bit better. And I obviously missed something because there was like a theme there that I wasn't hearing properly. And so I just went with great vulnerability and just said, guys, like, listen, I don't think I've maybe been listening hard enough or well enough and I need to pick it up. I've done some research into listening here's what I found hope it's interesting to you and by the way here are my commitments about listening and let's talk about some of yours and I thought you know just I, I think in a startup you get to do those things that are so wonderful and so critical to creating the kind of environment that you want to work in and so I think that this coupling of authenticity and vulnerability combined with this need. I mean, what was I, why was I being vulnerable? Because I wanted to achieve greater performance for me and for everyone else around me. And so Mm -hmm. I think it can actually be quite a powerful marriage rather than being sort of diametrically opposed.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of, it's a little bit ties to the idea of like Radical Candor by Kim Scott, where it's kind of like, if you you, you care personally and challenge directly, that's where you get truly great performance.
1: Yes, exactly. I think Radical Candor, um, we, is a theme we love. We try and encourage people, and I didn't know this, but I read some good HBRs um, in advance of our theme on radical candor. And one of the suggestions was to ask for advice rather than asking for feedback. And people are much more likely to be critical when you're asking for advice because the whole nature of the conversation is quite different.
0: Mm. And I just
1: I think that that's really great. And so I am uh, trying to really embed that. But even just this notion that like our whole company, whatever the topic is that we choose, you can see the whole company like. Get a bit better on that on that little bit the next week, and it's just I don't know makes my heart grow bigger. <laughs> <laughs> so earnest, right? That's so silly.
0: So I've I've always talked about like the power of being nice in, in previous businesses. Like I really I feel really the same as you. Like if you treat people well, for, and it's about the long term, not the short term, it pays dividends. Like things like how you exit, how you treat when they leave the business, for example, mm-hmm. sends a really strong message to the people that stay. <laughs> like, and, I, and I really believe that if you treat people well, it pays dividends in the, in the long run. It's just more fun.
1: Yeah. We want to have, I mean, we want to have this culture of, of people who want to help us too, right? Like startups are so funny because you rely on the generosity of others so much. Like the person who's willing to actually extend themselves to, get you connected somewhere. The person who's willing to reach out and do five more minutes with you on a topic so you understand something better. Like, yeah, and and I think to get that kind of generosity in exchange, I think being kind to those who you mean is is so important. Someone was making fun of me on LinkedIn the other day uh, where we published one of our cultural values is friendliness. And what friendliness is about for us is all about this need to have a bit of a laugh as you go, because we work so hard. I mean, I don't know any startup that's doing well, that doesn't work, you know, so hard, but we really do want our teams to be having fun too. Um, And so, you know, and it's not every day, like, and when we're not having fun, we need to look in the mirror and say, gosh, we're not having fun. What are we doing wrong here? Um, But we really have tried to emphasize what is our Kool Aid and, and get everyone to drink as much of it as they
0: can? <laughs> well, I think what's fascinating for me is is, is is really going back to this idea of like how you get that outcome while still being quite people focused in terms of there is like with startups, this thing like, oh, we can work super long hours. But if you're role modeling this, this idea of you can leave, it feels like it sounds like you're a believer in the idea that you can actually get a lot done if you squeeze it into, be quite disciplined about when you set the work to be done so you don't need to work long hours you can energize your team by getting them engaged keep the hours reasonable and still meet your sort of twin like excellence but friendliness
1: yeah I think so first of all it's not typically like oh you know leave at 5 30 and never be seen from again that day I think this idea of choosing when you work is critical and so it's not to necessarily say we don't put in those hours and we don't spend them because I think, honestly, I probably do spend more hours working than the average person. But I think it's, it's a matter of um, I don't want to do it. Like, I never want to miss bedtime. And I always say to my my team, I don't want you to miss, like, your kids' play. Like, God forbid you miss your kids' play because you're working in arterial. Like, that would just be terrible. Um, or depending on who you are and what's important to you, your yoga class that you do once a week and, you know, whatever it is. Um, And so I think it's really about choose when you work and how you work as long as you're, um, you know, focused on the result. And then, of course, I do actually believe in efficiency. I think I've gotten way more efficient. I think the world's gotten more efficient, you know, before we used to have coffee chats and hanging out. And I actually miss some of that inefficiency. I think we've almost gotten ruthlessly productive in COVID. And, you know, in our, in our Zoom life, and it's just, it's just a, it's a bit much. And I think we, I, you know, I look forward to when we're back in the office and like able to chill out a bit and like take a walk around the block or, or have some beers on like a, you know, or tea as, as, as appropriate on, 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 on a good evening. Um, But just, yeah, I, I, I think, um, I, I think you can really get your stuff done quite efficiently if you're, if you're focused on it.
0: Yeah. But I also hear you when you say that we've almost become super efficient at the expense of some stuff. Like we've stripped out some stuff that is you can get by with in the short term, but does hit you in the long term. It feels like there's some like just a social contracting and social refueling that cultures need. There's almost like quadrant that kind of urgent but not important, but not urgent. Well, that kind of gets jettisoned.
1: I think that's actually one of my favorite blog posts. Is 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 about urgency versus importance in the four quadrants, and I think it's just I, I think it's critical. Um, yeah, I think with our team, we um, yeah we probably need a bit more fun. I'd love to do some events. I'd love to you know I'd love to have everyone back together. Um, I, I know that at the big banks, most people are getting back on site, and, and uh, here in Canada, we're just emerging from lockdown. I think we've been in lockdown longer than anyone else in the world, actually, and so um, you know I think we. Uh, I think everyone will find their own pace. I, you know, Deloitte, for example, came out with an announcement last week saying, no one ever has to go back on site again if they don't want to, which I think is incredibly brave. Obviously we've seen statements from Shopify and others saying the office, you know, the Arab office centricity is dead. You know, I think we'll probably, for us, we're never going to force anyone to be anywhere or do anything, but I do think, um, except be, you know, be results oriented. Um, but I, I do think most of our people are just, I just don't think you get the same fun of working in a startup if you're working on your Zoom screen all day.
0: Thanks for listening today and hopefully you've taken away one thing to think about or try. Let me know in the comments if there's something you'd like us to explore in future episodes or just reach out on LinkedIn or podcast at district4.io. Let's keep learning and building great companies together.